everyone, and thanks for stopping by for another episode of MFA Writers. Today we're excited to have Erin Slaughter with us to talk about the publishing industry and her experience as a creative writing PhD student at Florida State University. This episode was requested by Rajiv Thind, so I hope you like it, Rajiv. But before that, I just wanted to give a shout out to all of you who received offers to attend an MFA. April 15th is when a lot of schools want a decision, so I just wanted to say good luck. I hope this podcast has provided some needed information for making the most informed decision possible. Now, just follow your gut. You can find MFA Writers on Instagram and Twitter, as well as MFAWriters.com. We love to hear from listeners, so feel free to shoot us a direct message on one of those platforms, or an email at MFAWritersPodcast at gmail.com. And if you have a minute to rate or review the show, the best place to do that is on Apple Podcasts. Doing so will help boost our podcast as we try to boost these amazing writers. Also, if you or someone you know would like to be a guest on the show, you can apply at MFAWriters.com. Finally, as always, thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to MFA Writers, the podcast where we talk to creative writing MFA students about their program, their process, and a piece they're working on. I'm your host, Jared McCormick. Today I'm with Aaron Slaughter. Aaron is the author of the short story collection, A Manual for How to Love Us, and two books of poetry, The Sorrow Festival, and I Will Tell This Story to the Sun Until You Remember That You Are the Sun. She is the editor and co-founder of The Hunger, and her writing has appeared in Black Warrior Review, Craft, Slice, The Rumpus, Prairie Schooner, and elsewhere. She holds an MFA from Western Kentucky University and is a PhD candidate at Florida State. Today she's brought a short story to read for us titled Crescendo. Crescendo. When I can no longer hide that I haven't been sleeping, I work up the courage to tell my husband what I'm afraid of. He looks up. What, that noise? It's just a plane, a car with a busted exhaust pipe. But I'm not so sure. He turns back to his computer screen or his cell phone screen or his video game screen, and I turn away too, as if having said the thing is enough. As if I understand saying the thing is not a path to opening some new door inside me, where fear can finally tumble out like so many mountains of dirty laundry stuffed in a child's closet. I tell my therapist how I cower in the grated corner by the air vent, wrapped in the blanket my grandmother crocheted for my 30th birthday a handful of weeks before she died, trembling in wait as the sound rises and rises, rattling the walls, shaking leaf-clung branches loose from the trees, until the noise is sucked back into the void it emerged from. Sometimes I get so nervous with the anticipation when the crescendo starts that I crawl, blanket draped over my back like a lioness carrying the limp corpse of her cub, to the bathroom across the hall and vomit. The therapist prescribes me Ativan, noting, women seem to have more luck with it. I'd lost my job, but it was probably for the best that I got fired when I did. I'd caught myself gripping my desk when the heater switched on, the clanging growing louder in the vents overhead like the hot breath of a beast drawing its mouth ever closer. I had to replace my aluminum water bottle with a plastic one, because the crescendo showed up at the cooler, and I feared it an omen of devastations to come. Each evening, I bolted to the parking lot and drove straight home, a horror stone heavy in my stomach. Whatever the name for it was, it was the opposite of hope. 
It was becoming the kind of life where I woke up and began looking forward to the next time I could sleep. Turning on the news was like strapping into a dread machine. We could usually predict what flavor of badness the world would invite upon itself next, or ignore the whining ache until it dissolved the back of our skulls. But lately, big things we'd never predicted kept crashing down, and when the dust began to settle, we were bowled over by another unexpected wave of terror. In every video, in the explosions and collapses and burnings, I recognize it. The thing you can hear coming, but can't save yourself from, because by the time you hear it, it's already too late. Once at the office, I found myself in the middle of a thunderstorm, wincing as the wind split pines outside the window. I snuck away to the bathroom to call my husband. He tried half-heartedly to comfort me, assuming I was only nervous about the weather. But my voice went anemic and I had to hang up. He who doesn't fear untimely disease or turbulence on planes has no idea what it means to be constantly clawing for survival. On my therapist's recommendation, I try massaging the scowl out of my face, sticking my fingers in a secret notch between my jaw and cheekbone. But then the crescendo comes once more, and again, I'm scraping and biting and crawling. These days, when my husband and I have sex, I don't let myself come. I pull back and let him work on my body until he feels useful. Crouched like an animal, I clasp my hands in front of me until he jolts and ends and slithers away. When he begins to snore, I take my blanket to the corner and hide and wait for the crescendo. It's rare that I sleep, but when I do, I dream of a faceless person clinging to a thick braided rope, climbing higher and higher. Since I'd gotten fired, no one from work had reached out. The only person other than my husband that I've spoken to in a month is the neighbor, Helen. Her husband recently left her, so she got two big dogs, a Great Dane and a Blue Tick Hound, to help her forget the extra space. But she can't afford the townhouse on her own, so she'd be moving away soon, too, at 43 and with a master's degree in engineering, to stay with her mother. We sit on her porch drinking the last cans of her gone husband's beer, and I ask her about the crescendo, if she'd ever noticed it. She shakes her head, then describes a dream she had while feverish as a child, in the months after her father wilted from cancer. Everything was dark, but she felt the hot shadow, something monstrous shifting around her huge and pelted, with gooey, wet fangs and the noises it made. She says she can still remember the noise so clearly that even now it sometimes comes back to her in the seconds before waking, like breaking through to the surface of the ocean from a deep place. I ask her to do the noise. Helen puts her beer down and stares into the damp, chirping night. When the sound starts, it takes me a second to understand it's coming from her. She exhales a creepy whine, soft at first, growing louder and louder until it sounds like a wailing siren, a harsh and helpless thing made of meat and absolute failure, the end of the world. Yes, I say, that's it. She nods and gulps from the can. Past the oily light cast over our street, the whistling begins again. Aaron, that was great. Thank you so much for reading and thanks for joining me. Thank you so much for having me here. So I got just a few lines into reading this story before I really started to feel that I was in the hands of a poet. Fear can finally tumble out like so many mountains of dirty laundry stuffed in a child's closet and shaking leaf clung branches loose from the trees. The imagery and the sound of these lines and others in the story have a really poetic lyrical nature to them. So in what ways do you see your poetic skills manifesting in your fiction And how do you think using poetic devices improves your prose? 
That's a great question. Um, I think it's, it's funny when people talk about sort of prose written by poets. And I know that this is something that, you know, I think of as a thing. Um, when I started writing, it was all kind of just one thing to me. Like I, I wrote and sometimes it was a story and sometimes it was nonfiction and sometimes it was poetry and they were all kind of coming from the same place. Um, and I used to kind of argue that like it's all words and you just decide later what box to put them in. And I don't, I feel a little bit differently about it now, um, but I used to be very adamant about that. And so I think coming from that place, like I've always been interested in the line level of fiction. And you know, when you read a story that's really well crafted, it's like this little gem of a thing, like that's because of that line level attention to detail. And so when I write, that is, that's something I'm aware of. Um, and that's also why I sometimes sacrifice other things like plot and the longevity of a story in order to have those really uh, compelling lines. So, Okay, so you said there was a time in which you thought like words are just words. It doesn't matter what category you put them into. But you said that's changed slightly. So what has changed? Has it been, you know, studying because you did your MFA in prose, right? And now you're doing a PhD in poetry. So does that have something to do with it or, or was there something else that changed it for you? Not really. You know, I would say... The, the main thing for me has been my own process and how it's changed. And part of that for me has come from um, my the changes in my life in terms of publication and sort of the audiences for my work um, and where that's going in the future. So I think what I've noticed for myself, and, and maybe partly this is due to my PhD in poetry in that I... Uh, I mean, to be honest, I got pretty burnt out on poetry emotionally, <laughs> not even in terms of craft, but just emotionally. Um, it, it kind of... It changed my feelings about poetry a little bit. Um but I think that what I've noticed for myself is that when I have this feeling of wanting to explore like some big existential questions or some of those big sort of life journey feelings, moments, things like that, um, that needs a bigger playground. And so that needs fiction um, or, you know, sometimes nonfiction, but I feel like that's a little bit more set in stone for me. But um, yeah, it, it kind of depends on what I want to explore. I think for me personally, poetry is a place to record and fiction is a place to question um, and to explore. And part of that is just like the space. Part of it is how I personally approach poetry and that it is this condensed thing. So it has to be this like glimmer of a moment or an impulse. Um, And that doesn't mean people don't explore big questions in poetry. I think they do. Um, But the, I guess maybe the process of me going into that form and wanting to use it for something, those impulses are different for me. Okay. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, you have this really unique experience having written, well, by the end of next year, you will have published two books of poetry and a short story collection, which is amazing. Congratulations, by the way. Uh, So I was curious whether you've always written prose and poetry or whether you were mostly doing one and then came to the other later. It's always been really simultaneous for me. I mean, there's definitely times when I've spent more time doing one than the other. And, and part of that was like, if I was working on a big book project, like in my MFA, um, I was still writing poetry pretty consistently, but there were large stretches of time where that wasn't my focus and I was spending more time in prose. Um, and then, you know, at the beginning of my PhD program, my second poetry collection that comes out this summer, I wrote that entirely pretty much in the first year and a half that I was in Florida in this program. And uh, so I was spending a lot of time in poetry and almost no time in prose. And this is really the first time that I foresee not spending more time with poetry for a while. And that being said, that doesn't mean I don't have ideas for poems or that I don't, uh, you know, have little drafts and things like that. But um, I think part of that is like the projects that I want to work on are, it's harder to do prose. It takes longer to 
you know, write a novel than it does to write a story, a poetry collection, um, for me at least. I, I remember Maggie Nelson saying something. I don't remember what podcast it was on, but uh, she said something about, and, you know, she's a writer who she published, I think, three collections of poetry before she published her nonfiction that she's most known for. And she said something about how she wasn't going to write a poem for maybe another 10 years because she felt like she could get away with too much in poetry. And I think I'd be, I sort of started to understand that feeling of I can knock out a poem that says pretty things <laughs> and, uh, it's not going to challenge me and really like push me the way that stories do. And again, this is my own process. Other people I'm sure have different processes and feel differently about those forms. But um, yeah, it's just like the, the things that I want to explore are they need more space. Um, and I also think that I got to a place where I was questioning my impulses and poetry too much, mostly because of external forces. But I think maybe part of that really was just me needing needing to challenge myself in new ways and needing to find another form to talk about what I really wanted to talk about. Yeah. I mean, I think we have this tendency, which I I think is a sad tendency, but it's just an American tendency, I think, which is to like talk about everything in terms of capitalism. So like even writing, even art becomes like this capitalist thing where we talk about producing and we talk about, um, you know, selling our work and all of that. And so from what I've heard of MFA students and, and PhD students who have finished their programs is there is this burnout that happens sometimes. There are, I've heard from students who finish their programs and they're like, I didn't write for a year because I just had to get away from it. And that's interesting because when we talk about it in these capitalist terms, like I said, it's about producing and producing and producing, but we don't talk enough about the space that we need sometimes and to just get away from it, creating space between us and our work to give our minds time to regenerate so we can actually produce something that we enjoy. I wonder if writing prose and poetry kind of gives you an outlet. Like if you get burnt out on poetry, you can switch to prose for a while or vice versa. Yeah, I think that's true. Um, I also think that they like inspire each other sometimes. Um, there was a project that is now sort of abandoned or maybe we're rethinking it, but a project I was working on with my best friend, Lena Ziegler, who I run The Hunger with. And we were, it was a nonfiction project um, of collaborative short essays that we were sending back and forth. And a lot of those essays inspired ideas for poems um, or became poems themselves in some form or another, or I stole lines from those essays and put them into poems where they belonged more easily. Um, so I think that they can kind of inspire each other, but I do think also, yeah, when poetry isn't working, that doesn't mean I'm done writing. I also think what you said about like needing time to breathe, if you're a person who really cares a lot about making art, not only because of the pressures of producing something um, or deadlines or whatever, but also because you feel more like yourself when you're writing and making consistently, that can be a really difficult thing to figure out how to do without giving yourself too much leeway. Um, and I'm also speaking as a person that I'm really hard on myself. So if I'm not doing everything all the time, I feel like, well, I'm I'm giving myself too much, uh, too much space, or I'm, I'm, I guess, like excusing this behavior in myself too much, or something. I'm in the exact same way, Erin. Yeah, <laughs> I think what what I've noticed is like a lot of it comes with learning to trust yourself as a writer too. Um, I never kind of knew when when those cycles of resting and then producing when that would happen for me and what that felt like um, until the summer that I was finishing my short story collection, I wrote the most I've written in a really long time where I probably wrote like half of those stories in two months, maybe. And so I was writing every day, which has not been my life before. And now is not really my life either. <laughs> um, and 
I guess because I was producing so much, I recognized that feeling of burnout and I did let myself stop, not write for a couple days, let ideas brew and then return to it because I had faith that I would return to it. And I think what's hard is um, when you're not in that place of creating consistently, knowing when an idea needs to marinate more or when you are sort of like giving yourself excuses for not writing because mm-hmm. you're scared or you don't have time or, you know, whatever right. that is. Yeah, it's definitely a balance because uh, I, I definitely fall into that trap too of working myself too hard to the point where I'm not generating work that's as good as it could be. But on the flip side, I, I think you're right. There's also the risk of giving yourself too much leeway and then you're not actually doing the work, not actually sitting down and doing the tough part. So it sounds like to me that when you sit down to write, you often know whether you're sitting down to write a poem or whether you're sitting down to write a short story. Earlier in your career, maybe you sat down and words were words and whatever came out was what came out. But now there's some structure and difference between the two. So I'm curious how your approach changes when you sit down to write a short story versus writing a a poem. Yeah, that's. I think that you're right that um, I have more intentionality about what I'm going to be working on now. And that doesn't mean that they stay that way. So there's, um, you know, parts of stories I've written or parts of essays I've written that become each other. So um, the piece that I read actually, um, Crescendo, it was really, it's probably the piece in the, the story in the collection that feels the most based in truth for me um, because I wrote it during um, the summer of 2020, during quarantine. And uh, something that happened to me as a result of the pandemic and during the pandemic is that I developed a really intense fear of storms. And something, you know, I'm a, I'm a cautious person, but I've lived in the South my whole life. I know tornadoes happen. I've never thought about it that much. Um, and it became really unbearable. <laughs> like every time it rained, I would have a panic attack and I would throw up and I, you know, it w- I was not sleeping. It was really bad. Um And then it extended to other noises. Like if I heard a plane go overhead, I was like, oh, bombs are dropping on us or a plane's going to crash into my house or, um, you know, the building I'm in right now uh, in the Williams building at FSU where my office is has a really loud air conditioner, (laughs) especially in the bathrooms. And it would always scare me. And I think that that for me was a result of like just the feeling of anything can happen in the world. So you're never really safe. And my brain extrapolating out that anxiety to like a really unhealthy degree. Um, So I wanted to capture in that story. I mean, some of that is based on real experience and some of it is the feeling of, you know, that anxiety or that grief represented in a kind of otherworldliness, like the way that when your mind really spirals out or you're dealing with these extremes of human nature and human psychology, it can feel sort of otherworldly. And that line is really um, a lot thinner than in everyday life for most people. Um, I wrote that story first as a way to sort of explore this idea and this feeling um, as a thing separate from myself. And then I also ended up writing very similar thing um, in the memoir that I'm working on when I was rewriting a lot of that material. And so then I had to think about like, you know, there were some places where I kind of wrote um, little drafts of both and they shared lines. And I was like, okay, well, these lines are in the story collection. I need to take a new angle in the essay um, or sort of like describe the experience differently or, you know, make sure they're not too closely related. But I think with fiction, that's something that's kind of interesting. And I think a lot of people are resistant to ever talking about fiction as inspired by real life, unless it's in a kind of promotional way of like, this writer has this identity that inspired these things. And so that's interesting to talk about because people don't really know how to talk about what happens in your brain when you make something up <laughs> or like what we should trust of fiction. And that's why auto fiction is a thing. And, but I think at the same time, there is this perception that like, if you make up everything from scratch, it's somehow more artistic or more 
prestigious somehow. It has more literary value. And I don't know if we ever make anything up completely from scratch. I think we're taking, at the very least, a question inside of us or an experience inside of us. And we're putting it somewhere where we can do more than what can happen in life. Um, we can explore it beyond the bounds of what is possible to explore because we're not in that place yet or we can't have those experiences. But yeah, I mean, that's something I encountered with poetry too, is like this resistance to confessionalism, which is what my dissertation is now about. Um, and as part of the reason I stepped away from poetry is that uh, I experienced like a lot of resistance to the idea that the I in the poem is some version of yourself as if that makes it lesser or that makes it like kind of like journaling instead of creating art in some way. Um, but I think the people who insisted that like the eye is not themselves, they're just more scared of owning what is inside of them or what they want to write about. And that it is coming from a genuine place. I think it, yeah, I think it maybe has at least something to do with this need to categorize writing like that we're talking about, like it has to be one thing or the other. And the truth is, is that, fiction and nonfiction, those lines are blurred all the time, I think. Even in a story that's completely made up, even in a science fiction story that's like not possibly something that could have happened, right? I think authors are still putting themselves in those characters, right? Like, I don't know. I haven't figured out how to write a character that feels real without putting myself in the character's shoes at least a little, like putting a little bit of myself in the character's. So those lines are constantly being blurred, but I think you're right. There's this need to like categorize. I don't know if that's a literary industry thing or if that's just a human thing. What do you think? I mean, I think it's both probably. I think, I mean, some of it is sort of like, well, where do you put the book on the bookshelf? <laughs> and like, how can Barnes and Noble uh, categorize it on their website or whatever? But I think that part of it too is like the traditional notions of these different um these different forms, which I think are actively being challenged now. Like now there is a hybrid category. Now there is auto fiction, which one of my students recently asked me what that term means. And I was like, nobody knows. <laughs> and that's the truth. It's like, no one really knows how much of yourself you're putting in. This is like auto fiction is when you admit it, I guess. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think that like the lines are always blurred. And what you said about, you know, characters, it's like, even if you have a character in a fictional world who is completely different from you in every way, you're still thinking about like, well, what did it feel like when you have an awkward interaction and how do you channel that into a character who's having an awkward interaction? Like, or, um, you know, little details of things always make their way into my stories. Like um, if I was eating a lot of like salmon, I was cooking salmon dinners a lot for a month. Like that's probably in a story somewhere. Or if I saw a certain brand of chips on TV, that's probably in a story. So um, there's no way to excise yourself from it. And I don't think we should because that is what makes things feel dry and stereotypical and like they're not based in, in real understandable human experience. Well, speaking of the literary industry, you've worked in the publishing world for several years. And so you have a fair amount of publishing experience at this point, both in publishing your own work and in publishing others' work. So I want to spend some time talking about publishing because I think that side of the writing world can feel a bit intimidating to emerging writers. So when did you first start working in the publishing world and what drew you to that experience? Yeah. So my first ever experience was that... Um, in my undergrad at the University of North Texas, I was a volunteer reader for the American Literary Review, which is their national journal. And I just, you know, read poetry submissions um, on a volunteer basis. And I just knew that I wanted to be more involved in writing and learning about writing and engaging with other people's writing. Um, didn't really know what I was doing. I was also very like nervous and shy <laughs> as an undergrad. So I remember going to like a 
editorial meeting with the masthead and just feeling really scared and out of my element, even though they were all very nice. Um, but from that, you know, I knew that I wanted to embark on a career that had something to do with writing. And I was also very scared of not having a job, which I think a lot of people are when they go into the Englishes. And uh, for me, it was a big anxiety because I come from a family that does not have a safety net for me. Like that was never a possibility for me that I could take time off in between. You know, I worked full time in undergrad alongside, you know, doing school. So it was either, okay, I'm going to do something in writing in whatever angle I can make a path for myself, or I'm going to work in retail forever, basically. And so um, as I was approaching my last semester of college, I looked up some publishing internships randomly, again, not really knowing what they entailed, but just knowing I wanted to learn more about writing, be around writing. And um, one of the internships that I applied for was at Copper Canyon Press, which again, didn't know a lot about them um, until I interviewed with them and realized I had a bunch of their books on my shelf. And um, it was this really beautiful, sort of felt like this faded thing that my favorite poet at the time, Richard Sykin, who had published one collection of poetry, um, Crush, which is a really you know famous collection, came out in, I think, 2004. Um, he was publishing their second, his second poetry collection with Copper Canyon in the year that I was applying for to be an intern. And so I talked a lot about you know him as a, an example of what I loved about poetry and what inspired me to be a writer and didn't even know that that was happening. And they were like, oh, actually, you're a great fit for this reason that you actually have a lot of inside knowledge about what people like about his writing, about where to find those communities online. And I got to be part of this really amazing crowdfunding campaign uh, where I got to go out into the woods and help them film a promotional video. And I got to meet Richard and sort of spend the day with him. And um, then I, a lot of my work also entailed like finding on Tumblr, the people who loved his work, even if they didn't know it, they encountered quotes, you know, pasted onto, uh, you know, fan fiction or whatever. And being like, hey, there's this book coming out by this writer that you like, you should come, you know, donate and be excited about it and setting up events and things like that, um, which was really new for the press. And I think was new at the time. This was in 2014. So not as common as it is now. You know, from that experience, that was the first time that I really ever spent time around anyone who cared about writing. Um, you know, I, I didn't have a lot of close friends in college, and the ones that I did were artistic in, in certain ways, but were not into poetry, certainly, um, even if they were into reading. And I remember at Copper Canyon, um, at the beginning of every faculty meet or staff meeting that we would have, I think biweekly, someone would read a poem, and everyone else would sort of bow their head and close their eyes. And it was just this beautiful, form of communion, almost like prayer in the way that poetry can feel. I'm actually getting chills talking about it. Um, and it was so profound to me. It was also profound to realize that my passion for writing and reading translated into something and that I was good at something because I didn't know what to expect. And so, you know, from that experience, I was, I was applying to MFA programs throughout my time there um, and then went to one that involved an internship in the second year. And I chose to apply to Saraban Books in Louisville um, for that summer internship and then got to build on those skills, got to use the skills I already had. Because um, something that's great about interning for a small press is that it's usually a pretty small staff. So you get a lot of FaceTime with people one-on-one -on -one, and you also have your hand in a lot of different areas. So I got to work in um, editing, development, um, community engagement, planning events, uh, marketing, pre-sales, all these things um, where you might be very focused on one area in a larger company. And so I got to use all those skills in my Sarabin internship and then also see how a different sort of publishing company was run with a different audience, um, different authors, different 
office dynamics, you know, different things on the horizon for that company. Yeah, I just, I love it. It's, it's one of my favorite things. I find it to be really inextricable from my feelings about writing and about publishing my own work is, is working in publishing and publishing other people's work and sort of being behind the scenes. Those things are really intertwined for me. Okay. So for people who don't have any experience in publishing, who haven't been behind the scenes, I think submitting and navigating the business side of writing can feel really difficult and intimidating. So I was hoping you could talk a bit about what you've learned over the years from these experiences that might help demystify the publishing world for our listeners a little bit. Yeah, this is my favorite thing to talk about (laughs) ever. Um, (laughs) And uh, this is also a really important part of what I see as my mission as a teacher primarily, but also just like as a person, a writer in the world, is that it does feel really weird to know how to get started if you don't have access to these things or no one's telling you what to do. Um, It can feel really gatekeepy. And um, so I think that there are a lot of resources out there. And often it's just about knowing where to find them and where to begin. The main resource that I point people towards, which unfortunately is uh, is ceasing soon, is the Entropy Where to Submit list. Although I think they're keeping their archive up and they are um, someone else is taking over that project. But that is what I used primarily. So um, it's a list for those who don't know who that used to come out, I think, monthly. Then it was every three months with opportunities for um, chapbook chapbook presses who are accepting submissions, book presses accepting submissions, literary journals accepting submissions, and then other writing opportunities like fellowships, residencies, jobs, things like that. Um, And that's how I learned the market. That's, you know, I I would click on all those different journals if they sounded cool, if they accepted the genre I was working in. um, And I would just read about them. I would read work from their journal. I would see if I'm a good fit for them. And then I, over time, you do that and you sort of learn the personality of these different journals and you learn sort of where you fit in. So that's what I would recommend. And even if the entropy list goes away or, you know, is inaccessible in the future, um, whoever is listening to this in the future, there's so many databases. There are almost as many databases as there are journals. Um, the Poets and Writers database is one. Um, I believe there are a lot of independent lists. One that comes to mind is uh, Trish Hopkinson is a blogger who does a lot of uh, interviews with small presses and um, small publishers. And so you can learn a lot more about what goes into the editorial process for a journal. Erica Dreyfus is another writer and freelancer who puts up a list of opportunities. I believe it's every Monday, and then she does a monthly newsletter, both for journal submissions. All of them are paying as well, so it's all ways that you can get paid for your work. And so there's there's a lot of those resources out there, people curating lists and putting things out there, and it's just about exploring. I think that I am in the minority of people who enjoy submissions. <laughs> I think most people find it to be a chore, and uh, you know, a chore at best, demoralizing at worst, and um, it's hard to it's hard for me to know how to approach those people because like I do understand sometimes it feels like a chore. I do understand getting rejections is hard, but it's the one thing you as a writer can do to help yourself. Um, you know, you can't control whether or not someone picks up your work, but you can send out to five more journals so you have five more chances for the next person to pick up your work. And that's often what I did is I would get a rejection, um, be bummed about it for like 30 seconds, and then look up a bunch of opportunities and submit five more things. And so it's, it's a lot of it's a numbers game. A lot of it is not about you and your writing, but about other logistics that have to do with publishing and editorial preferences and page space, all these things. I recommend when you find these opportunities, if they're not currently accepting submissions, like if you see a journal and you're like, oh, they're really cool. I like their design. I like their mission. I think my work would fit here, but they're not accepting submissions for another, you know, six months, bookmark that, have a folder on your computer of 
things to, you know, things to submit to in the future and use it as procrastinatory work, <laughs> which is my favorite life hack, um, is that when you're procrastinating on other work you don't want to do, do work that you don't have to do yet, but um, can give you sort of the feeling of productivity. And uh, yeah, that's that's how I live my life for like nine years. <laughs> and that's how I built my entire publishing career. So. There are a ton of literary mags out there, but there's all, there are also some that are coming and going, right? Like recently it was announced that conjunctions would be closing, although I, I think I saw today that maybe they aren't actually going to close. But there have been some really great literary magazines recently who have closed. But at the same time, there are new lit mags that seem to be popping up all the time, including The Hunger, which is a, a literary magazine in Chatbook Press that you co-founded and edit which is now in its sixth year. So would you tell us a bit about The Hunger and perhaps you could talk about where you see the publishing world going in the future, specifically literary magazines? Yeah, so um, The Hunger really started as a passion project, as all these things do, and still is a passion project. It's, it's not giving me money personally. <laughs> um, but we, Lena Ziegler and I started this um, as we were finishing our MFA in 2017. We were, in the, we were both in the inaugural cohort of Western Kentucky University's MFA program. Um, and she is like my soulmate. <laughs> she is my best friend. Um, she's my ideal reader for my own work. Um, and we share a lot of the same sensibilities around writing, particularly the style that the hunger tries to encounter encapsulate, which is emotionally driven craft-based writing. So writing that is still really steeped in craft and skill, but is driven by visceral emotions and emotional language. Um, and we started it because we didn't really see a lot of places out there for writing like that, um, which is a lot of what we write and what we like to read. That was sort of the mission we started The Hunger with, was to create a space for this kind of writing, um, to create an inclusive community, and that writing looks really different. Um, it comes from a lot of different places and a lot of different forms, but sort of having that mission in mind. You know, since then, I would say every year we've very steadily grown, and What's great about working with Lena on this is that um, she's really good at like reining me in, I guess. Um, not only is it is it nice to have, you know, a friend to sort of help you with these things, to talk about things, to talk about the direction that you want to go in in the future, to read submissions, whatever that is, but like she has really emphasized to me the importance of sustainable growth and what's doable. And I think that that's why we've had the longevity that we've had and why we are continuing to grow. Um, because if it was up to me, I would have tried to start a small press the first year and then I, it would have failed and then we wouldn't be doing any of it. So <laughs> um, I think we also both have a really similar sense of ethical responsibility about the magazine, which is that we want to honor the fact that these people are sending their work to us and we want to keep it alive as long as possible. So we feel a responsibility to keep it going and to take it seriously, you know, what we've taken on, um, to not let that work disappear off the internet like so much has um, for as long as we can, at least. And right now things look good. It keeps us very busy. Um, we've talked about, you know, since it is just the two of us and now we have an editorial assistant as well. We've talked about like, you know, if one of us decides to have a family and needs to go on maternity leave, what happens to the journal? If one of us, you know, has a really demanding job, um, but we've worked through many life transitions in the time we've been with the journal. And so I don't see it going away anytime soon. I think that the future of lit mags is a precarious one. As everyone knows, like that's why journals disappear is because it's run by a couple of people who are not getting paid to do that work. It's extremely demanding work. It's expensive to make it less demanding. <laughs> so we originally ran our submissions through Google Docs uh, and like a Google Drive folder through email. 
And it became completely untenable really in the second year, but we couldn't afford submittable until the fifth year. So now it's a lot more, uh, it's a lot faster. Our response times, our organization is a lot better, but that costs money to do. Um, it costs money to have memberships to things that allow us to keep this going. And it's now a self-sustaining endeavor, but like many other journals, what we had to do was create a submission fee through Submittable. For me, it was really important that if we had a submission fee, we were paying our writers because I don't think it's fair to ask someone to pay for the opportunity to submit and they get nothing in return other than exposure. Um, so we are now, starting with this next issue, going to be able to pay writers, which is really exciting. Um, we pay the winners of our chapbook contest, both in copies and in money. And so really, I think like most people have talked about with this enterprise, the idea that you have to pay to submit. Um, usually it's really just to fund the platform that you're submitting on. And the really the only solution to that is federal grants, <laughs> basically, and legislation that is going to improve uh, funding for the arts, because otherwise it becomes uh, like a closed ecosystem. Like writers are paying to submit and then writers are getting published and then they're cycling that money into other journals. And so it's writers sustaining writers. But then where are the readers? Where are the other people who might be interested in literary journals for reasons other than submitting to them? Um, where are the supporters of other things that literary journals have going on, like mentorship programs and community workshops, things that we hope to expand in the future? So, I mean, really, that's what it is, is like no one in writing has a lot of money. And so we're all kind of just like hobbling along and helping each other where we can. But then it sometimes becomes an exclusionary system because, you know, if you're a writer and you have even just one story you're sending out to 20 places, that's over $100 to submit that one story. And it might not get picked up and you might not get paid for it if it does. So it was also very important to us when we implemented a submission fee to have a free month so that anyone who doesn't want to pay to submit or can't pay to submit um, can, you know, bookmark us and send any time during that month. Um, you mentioned that you and Lena met in the MFA program at Western Kentucky University and that you were two of five students in the first ever cohort at WKU. So what was it like being the first students in an MFA program? <laughs> um, really beautiful and really chaotic. <laughs> um, I So when I applied to MFAs, I applied to 16 programs and Western Kentucky was the last program I applied to. It was the only program that required a GRE. It was when I was working at Copper Canyon and I, uh, it was, I think two weeks until the deadline when I randomly came across this, I think on a Facebook group, honestly, um, because they, you know, were just starting up and, uh, didn't have a lot of promotion going. And I was like, well, do I apply to this? Do I just wait out my chances? Do I, pay to take the GRE. And that day I went and bought some index cards and a GRE study book. And I took the ferry to Seattle a week later and took the test. Um, and that was the only program I got into. And uh, I did not know what to think because I had never been to Kentucky. I was very wary of going into a program that was just starting. Um, I mean, to be honest, I think my initial reaction was like a little bit of like disappointment or embarrassment that I couldn't get in somewhere, you know, quote unquote better. But everything about being in that program has been all of the best things that have ever happened in my life and have led to all the best things that have happened in my life. What I loved about the program is that we ended up with a really strong cohort for, you know, it being this sort of startup ramshackle thing. Like um, we were all working, I think there were three of us who came in as fiction writers, two who came in as poets and one screenwriter. I'm sorry. So it was six of us total. And um, throughout the, the two years of our program, we all ended up writing in 
different genres. Um, part of that was because we didn't have a workshop set up for us the first year. So what we did was we met in people's living rooms. It was my living room mostly. Um, we met in people's living rooms and we did workshops together and we built community together and we learned about each other's writing. So fiction writers were workshopping poems by poets because that's who we had. Um, and poets were workshopping uh, fiction and nonfiction and hybrid work because we were all sort of in this this thing together. And then when classes did come available, it was we didn't have a poetry workshop every semester. We took what workshop was available to us. Um, and so we were all just trying to have time to work on writing, whatever that looked like. Um, and we all did have different areas of focus and strength, but I think we were able to experiment a lot in the way that I think an MFA is the most useful for to kind of figure out, just try new things, find your voice, see what works for you. And it's also really useful to have a poet comment on a story because they're going to notice things that other prose writers might not and vice versa. Well, now you're in your fourth year of the creative writing PhD program at Florida State University, which I imagine has been a different experience. Florida State's program is well-established. They offer both a three-year MFA program and a four-year PhD. Your focus is in poetry, as we said earlier, um, and your MFA was in prose. So what made you want to pursue the PhD after having had this experience in the MFA? Yeah, well, I mean, frankly, I took a year off after my MFA. Um, and by off, I mean not in school. And that was intentional because I didn't think I wanted to do a PhD because I didn't think I wanted to teach. And I think part of that was that I was teaching composition, which I like teaching, um, but I can live without. <laughs> and now that I've taught creative writing, it's like it means a lot more to me. Um, but I originally thought about working in publishing or, um, you know, doing something writing adjacent like marketing. I think I applied to like 70 jobs and nothing panned out. And so I had a friend who was moving to Nashville because she had an acting group there that she was involved with and she got a job there. And so I just kind of moved with her and uh, I got a job as a receptionist at a hair salon at a sort of like fancy high powered hair salon. And it was a good experience in the sense that, um, I think I under I think I began to understand what writing really meant to me because it wasn't part of my daily life anymore because no one I was interacting with on a daily basis cared at all about what I was doing. And so I would read on my lunch breaks, I would write on my lunch breaks, I would write on sticky notes at the counter and stick them in my bra and then assemble a poem when I got home later that day. So many of my poems got written that way. Um and I would get up in the morning before work for 30 minutes and write a couple sentences of a scene of a story, which I've never done since. Um, but when it's not part of your life and it's not part of the expectations of your life, um, holding on to it becomes more precious and more important. And I made a lot of really good friends during that time. But my life sucked, honestly. <laughs> like, it was not fun. Um, I worked usually like eight to 10 hours a day, um, five or six days a week. I was living in Nashville and my commute was 35 minutes at best. Um, across the city. And I was struggling with having had this beautiful writing community, these beautiful friendships, a lot of really meaningful experiences. And then everyone I cared about scattering all over the country doing new things. And I didn't know what I was going to do. And so there was this one night where I kind of just thought like, well, anything's better than this. <laughs> so I decided to apply to PhDs because I really just wanted to be in a community of writers again. And I think that I, I understood what I do kind of understand now about the difference between an MFA and a PhD, which is that an MFA is time to explore writing, to try new things, to experiment, to sort of learn who you are as a writer and create that process and identity for yourself. And a PhD is about professionalizing that. Um, and I was ready to do that. By the time that I got into PhDs, my first book was accepted for publication. And I was really excited that I was going to be in a community of people who could help me shepherd that 
process into the world and to build on my publications and build toward other books. FSU is really different in a lot of ways than Western. Um, Number one, that it's a huge program. So I came in with a cohort of 15 total creative writers, and that's one of three programs in the English department. So it's a really large program, really large school. We, it's the number two creative writing program in the country, at least for PhDs. And so there was this element of prestige that I had never had access to before and didn't really know why they wanted me here, frankly. Um, and that was also, it was fun and exciting and challenging um, because I am colleagues and was colleagues then with a lot of people who are publishing in really cool places who are doing work that is really exciting and aspirational to me. And so to be among them and to be able to know those people and challenge myself to sort of meet them where they're at was awesome. Um, But then with the prestige, there also is this sort of weird political anxiety about the politics of the department, the egos involved when you're working with writers who are you know, famous as, as famous as writers can be. And then also at a well-funded uh, university in the South, just all of the cultural things that come along with some of that prestige, which um, I think it was difficult for me, especially coming in because I was 25 when I started this program. And so I was still, I didn't feel young, but I was still young in all the ways that mattered, meaning that I still had this very moon-faced eagerness about the world that was promptly beaten out of me. <laughs> and I, I think I'm just now reclaiming, frankly, like I, I really um, came into this program sort of hopeful and starry eyed and believing like, well, you know, if you try hard and you work hard, like good things happen to you because it's based on merit and like it, it matters to work hard and it matters to care about what you're doing and to be passionate. And then a lot of, not, I'm not going to say a lot, some of my colleagues were people who were like, no. Uh, it's all about who you schmooze and what parties you go to and what professors you drink with and uh, writing like the publications that you want to get in, which I still heartily disagree with. And they weren't taking teaching seriously and they were canceling their classes. And part of that is sexism too, which is another conversation. But yeah, I just, uh, I, it really, I was a very open hearted person, even though I didn't believe I was at the time. And I got sort of wounded by being in this world that was kind of cutthroat. Um, and again, not all of it. Like I've made really wonderful friends here um, who will be my friends throughout my life, I believe. But I had a lot of also important growth experiences in understanding how the world works in some ways and the, how the writing world works and also understanding what I don't want to be and who I don't want to be as a teacher, as a writer, as a mentor. Um, a lot of those negative experiences reinforced what matters to me and allowed me to... I guess, feel more passionate about using whatever knowledge I have, whatever experience I have, using that genuinely to be a resource to people and not expecting anything in return. And, you know, just remembering that the people I'm talking to, my students are people I was once um, and that there's no reason for me to be here if I'm not here to help them. You mentioned your students, uh, the FSU program, both the MFA and the PhD program are fully funded and and the MFA is three years, the PhD is four years with an optional fifth year of funding. That funding comes with an assistantship. So you're currently teaching creative writing courses, I think. So how has that experience been for you? It's been the best. It's been wonderful. Um, it was about two years of teaching composition courses before I got to teach a creative writing course here, um, as is pretty standard for um, the PhD program, at least. And the great thing is that I've gotten to teach a lot of different courses, which is not the par for most um, 
PhD, definitely not most MFA programs. Um, I have gotten to teach two different courses in creative nonfiction. I am, have taught poetry workshop twice. I'm teaching my first fiction workshop now. Um, and I've taught a literature course in the short story. And I think I've taught something else too. I can't remember. Oh, I'm teaching a, an intro to poetry literature course this summer. So I've gotten to really teach a broad range of literature and creative writing courses. I've got to teach in every genre, which is what I wanted to do. And so that has been awesome. And yeah, it's, I mean, I love working with students. I love talking to people about writing. And more than that, I love sort of helping people realize the ways in which writing does actually matter to them and affect them and can be influential in their lives and their understandings of themselves. And that's something that I can bring to composition as well. But when I am teaching creative writing, I feel like I have so much more to offer. Um, it's more fun in a lot of ways, but it's also like, this is my specialty. This is what I've spent my life on. And I feel like I actually do have something that can be useful to them going forward if they want. And besides teaching, you're also co-hosting the Jerome Stern reading series at FSU. So maybe you could tell us a bit about that reading series and what your responsibilities include and how you ended up getting that gig. Yeah. So um, I'm not sure how I got this gig. Actually, I think <laughs> someone just asked me to do it. Um, yeah. I So originally, actually, like my first year hosting was during the pandemic. So we did a virtual series and now we're back in person. Um, and that has been really fun to return to in person. Um, it was fun during the pandemic too, but there's something about the energy of a room <laughs> that you can't capture over Zoom. And uh, it was a lot harder to get people to read during that time because there just wasn't as much of a sense of community and people were also really stressed out and scattered as everyone was. Um, but my responsibilities for that are mostly um, scheduling the series. So before the semester begins, we reach out by email to graduate students um, to ask if anyone's interested in reading. We prioritize people who have books coming out or have other sort of things they need to publicize during the semester, or if they're graduating, want to do a reading before they leave. And then other than those graduate slots, um, we schedule writers to come from outside. So recently we had Percival Everett come and read, which was awesome. We've had a lot of people come and read who are either alumni of the program, friends of the program, um, or our other writers. We had Kristen Arnett come a couple years ago um, when she was publicizing her first book. So we have a good mix of, you know, graduate students and having their community there to support them, being able to sort of publicize their own projects, and then also having esteemed writers from elsewhere come or alumni come back to celebrate what they're working on. Well, yeah, I'm starting to see how this PhD program is kind of preparing you for the professional side of writing. So you have the opportunity to teach the creative writing courses if you're interested in teaching in the future. You have the chance to like host a reading series, which is a really cool opportunity. And then they also have the Southeast Review that's published at FSU, which I know that you worked on. So you can get that experience um, actually working for a lit mag. What was that experience like for you? I'm really glad I had that experience. Um, so I was the nonfiction editor uh, of the Southeast Review in 2020 to 2021. And that was really useful for me because I had worked you know, as in literary magazines and literary organizations. Um, but running The Hunger is really different from working with a masthead team in an established institution. So, um, you know, there were different constraints, like we had a page count that we could accept. Um, whereas, you know, in The Hunger, we're, we're digital. So really, a lot of it just comes down to what do we like and what do we want to curate? Um, there weren't, weren't those restrictions. There is also a lot of collaboration with a reading team, holding table reads, collaboration with the editor at the time and the assistant editor to sort of sign off on the pieces we wanted to accept. And then more a more thorough editorial process, I would say, with the writers themselves. 
The other thing too is that, you know, the the Hunger and Southeast Review have very different aesthetics. So work that I really loved and would accept for the Hunger were not quite a good fit for Southeast Review. But the work that was a good fit for Southeast Review challenged my understanding of what essays can be and do. And I started applying some of those, some of that editorial knowledge also to thinking about, you know, an essay submitted for The Hunger, if, if that's really doing what it should be doing um, for publication too. So they really informed each other and they're pretty different experiences and it's good to have both sides of that. Yeah, there's also the the Kudzu Review is FSU's undergraduate journal, which is kind of like a little hidden gem. It's been going on for a while and I'm the faculty advisor for that. And this year has been a really fun year to be faculty advisor because the editor-in-chief right now, uh, Mia Jackson, is just like a powerhouse. Like she reminds me a lot of myself when I was an undergrad, except for she's better. She's like smarter and cooler and more, doing more stuff than I would do. But um, she has really transformed that journal and its presence at FSU and in our community in a way that I don't think anyone's ever tried to do before and that we are working really hard to try to sustain when the next people come into our roles. So assuming I get a job and I leave FSU this year and graduate, um, someone will be taking over my role and then someone will be taking over her role when she graduates. And so we're really trying to, to keep hold of those changes that she's, I mean, it's, it's been all her. She's worked to implement them and I've just kind of given ideas and given go-aheads and sound, signed forms and stuff. But that's been cool too, to sort of hand the reins over to someone who's really passionate about their own publishing project and to be able to be, you know, not only a source of advice, but an advocate for her in helping these things happen within the department. You know, and we mentioned earlier that FSU has both an MFA and a PhD program. So I imagine there are a lot of creative writers roaming around that campus. So what's the sense of community like at FSU? And maybe you can talk a bit about living in Tallahassee as well. Oh, man, I really love Tallahassee in a lot of ways. Um, And I, I will say that the Really, the absolute best thing about FSU um, is how much of a creative writing community there is here. Um, like I said, I mean, just my year was 15 writers in fiction and non or sorry, fiction and poetry. And so then that's not even including the MFA. That's not even including, um, you know, the, the writers in the years ahead and behind me. So really large creative writing community. There's also um, FAMU is in Tallahassee. So we have writers there um, like Yolanda Franklin, who's a wonderful poet. Um, and we have a relationship with the creative writing department there. There's a local bookstore called Midtown Reader that um, sells books for us at our readings very kindly and that hosts events and, you know, hosts a lot of FSU alumni. So there really is a sense of like a literary community that not only is within the university, but stretches outward into Tallahassee and into things going on here. And I mean, I really love Tallahassee, honestly. Like if it weren't for the weather in Florida, then uh, I wouldn't want to leave because it's beautiful. Um, And that's the thing that won me over is we have these trees that are unlike anything that I've ever, anywhere I've ever lived. Um, These giant oaks with Spanish moss and flowers that happen at all points of the year. Um, And now I know the flower schedule. Like I know when the mimosas come up and everything's magenta, then it's like, well, this is the beginning of spring. And when the mums come up, then it's the end of spring and summer's about to burn everything away. And in the summer, you know, it rains every day. And uh, I'll walk outside with my dog in the morning and there's just a whole field of mushrooms. And by midday, they're just gone. And then they start over again. So Tallahassee, you know, not only is it a beautiful place, but it's really influenced my writing because there is this 
this beauty um, and this sort of sense of peace and greenery and things growing and wildness, but also this sort of like visceral underbelly <laughs> that I really related to, especially when I first moved here um, and really is what is captured in the Sorrow Festival. I think my, my second poetry collection is these visceral experiences I was having as a person that were coupled with joy and beauty. That's really represented in the landscape. Like we have possums, we have raccoons that are foraging. We have like death everywhere and like worms and gross stuff. But then we also have this tropical beauty and then we have the hurricanes that make the beauty possible. So it's really an enigma of a place. Um, and I love it. It's been really formative for me. Well, the sorrow festival, your book of poetry is coming out this year from clash books and a manual for how to love us. Your debut short fiction collection is coming out in 2023 from Harper perennial. So Congratulations again on that. <laughs> and, and tell us a bit about those books and when we can expect yeah. to see them. Yeah. So the Sorrow Festival is available for pre-order now. So that's my second poetry collection. As I mentioned, I don't think I'm going to touch poetry for a while. So like get your hands on it while you can. <laughs> I also think it's the best poetry I've written legitimately. Um, and I know that doesn't mean a lot coming from the writer themselves, but I feel like in the way that, you know, sometimes you read poetry and it's nice and it's pretty. And then sometimes you read poetry and you're like, oh, something is in there. It's like a little animal rattling around inside. And there's like something that the person captured. I feel like that little animal is in that book. Like I feel like the viscerality of my experience is really captured there. And uh, I'm really proud of the work. That book is really focused on um, a couple different things. So as I mentioned, the Florida landscape is a really big part of it. It's really interested in gender dynamics too. So like violence uh, in terms of like violence against women, um, familial violence, romantic violence. Um, it's interested in sexuality and longing. And uh, there's a lot of possums, I think, involved. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I think ultimately it's, it is that struggle between pain and beauty and trying to hold on to something pure and also recognizing that within those beautiful, most beautiful ecstatic moments is also the sorrow. Like they, they complement each other. They're the same thing in different vehicles a lot of the time. And it's also, you know, interested in addiction too, which is interesting because I finished this book maybe for, for the last time I finished it, maybe around spring 2019, something like that. And uh, it got picked up in November, 2020 and this past year in like August 2021, um, you know, I was writing a lot in this book about addiction, about alcoholism, which is a, a theme in my family <laughs> in real life, and uh, sort of came around to the idea of quitting drinking and getting sober. And now I'm exploring that in a way that I didn't expect when I wrote the book. But I'll go back and read lines and I'm like, oh, yeah, <laughs> maybe maybe that was there all along. And I was just waiting to, to let it emerge. Um, so, so that's that. And then my short story collection, I'm very excited about. And um, I'm currently in the, the process of working with my editor at HarperCollins, Emma Cooper, who is just like the best person. I could not have had a better journey towards getting this book picked up and a better sort of editorial experience. Um, and I've heard horror stories and I've heard neutral stories, but this is a good, a good editorial relationship. She really understands what the book is and what it wants to do. And she values those things and she is better than I am at seeing how to make those things happen. So it's challenged me as a writer to be working through these edits too, and to reimagine some of these pieces, which are quite old, but that book is like a little, I don't want to say it's a puzzle box. Cause I think people ex 
expect a certain thing with that term, but um, I'm excited by it because they're not linked in a traditional sense, but there's little details that link them and little Easter eggs. And they're all swirling around this central piece, which is the title piece, a manual for how to love us. um, That is this kind of abstract, weird hybrid dictionary that brings all the pieces together. And that book is about like, I think, a lot of the same things like gender dynamics. Um, all the women or all the narrators in the book are women. Um, most of them are queer narrators. Um, all of them are exploring sort of the aftermath of grief and figuring out what to do in that aftermath or sort of actively in grief and magical realism and weirdness and superstition comes along to sort of, uh, show an experience of that grief and to really push it to its limits. So I just, I want to create something for people that feels like a mystery as you're solving it, or it feels like you're in on a secret. And that's what I've tried to do with this book. Awesome. Well, we'll be sure to put those links on our website, mfawriters.com. Before we go, I want to give you the last word on FSU and the PhD program. I always ask my guests, what's one thing that you think the program does really well and one way in which they could improve? I think the thing that the program does really well is what I mentioned about that sense of community. It's a big community and they can feel sort of swallowing, but it can also feel really supportive. It's kind of like crowd surfing, right? Like you can feel either drowned or you can feel supported. And sometimes it's both at different times. Um, but there's somewhere for you to find your people. And there is just like a great network of people doing cool things um, and opportunities to be engaged with that. So that's something that I think is a really huge benefit. In terms of things to improve, I think that you know, some of the things I would maybe mention are things that are already changing in the department. So we just hired um, two new faculty members in poetry, um, Lamar Wilson and the cyborg Jillian Visa, who are amazing, innovative writers working in multiple genres, um, both disabled writers uh, interested in writing about queerness and disability, and um, very stylistically different than some of the other faculty. So I would say that, you know, for myself only in the poetry realm and only really experiencing that is that um, when I came in, the aesthetic of the poetry faculty seemed very similar and very different to what I was doing. And so it wasn't always useful because I didn't quite know how to find someone who sort of saw my work in the way that a mentor needs to, to be able to give good advice and to, to shape it up um, like you do in workshop. But now I think I would have a really different experience if I was coming in because we have a variety of writers in a variety of styles talking about a variety of subjects. Um, So yeah, things are already changing for the better, I think. Well, that's great. And this was great. I love talking to you and I'm so excited for your books. And thank you so much for giving us some insights on the publishing world. I feel like those viewpoints are always important to get anytime you can. So thank you so much for sharing those with us and thanks for taking the time to talk to me. Yeah, thank you so much. This is a lot of fun. 